Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Hey man, you ready for biology? We're gonna we're gonna heat your suit now, Bob. <laughs> You want to start with with shout outs? Your call, brother. Do you like to give the shout outs at the beginning of your edit? I I like to uh, mix it up. So right in the middle. Hey, (laughs) that reminds me. That reminds me. Shout outs. Well, this one just catches a quick eye. Danger. Do not miss. Five stars. Got a new review from Diver Dog One. Diver Dog. <laughs> Diver Dog. Yo, Dog. He says TGDP has something for divers of all experience levels, novice to tech, newbie to seasoned pro. Their irreverent non PC approach is much appreciated. Not for the faint of heart. The podcast is like sitting down, BSing with your two dive buddies where anything goes. <laughs> this dive pro has been actively diving for 47 years. 47 and I, and years. And I continue to learn much and laugh with each new episode. The recent blow and go episode was riveting. It was riveting. Hold was. on to your seats because it's just getting better. Yes. Yeah. So we did C-Lab yeah, 1 last week. <laughs> C-Lab 2 this week. I thought this was 1.3. No man, this is uh, two. Two, okay. We got some cool stuff in C Lab too. It's a whole, whole nother. Okay, I can. President it. of the United States is involved. Donald Trump. <laughs> Goddamn dolphins are involved. I think just saying his name just triggered half the audience. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Secret uh, dolphin missions. Dolphins trained. I'm sick of these goddamn dolphins. C Lab dolphins to the rescue. We get some bigger. More posh. Uh, digs. Digs. Underwater digs. Underwater undersea digs. digs. Yeah, they really stepped it up. So with the success of Sea Lab 1. Was it really a success? They had to abort early. They, had, they? To, they had to abort early. 11 days. Nobody died. It was 11 days. Nobody died. That's yeah. a sign of success in the military. <laughs> no, mission, that's not true. Mission. Nobody, that is not no ca- true. Zero casualties. That is not true at all. That's a success. Yeah. Yeah, so like a year later. Was Sea Lab a military operation? I don't it was think US I... Navy. Oh, it was. 
Yeah, it was old George Bond. George Bond, yeah. U.S. Navy mission. I don't, I don't know so much it was a mission as a as an experiment. Well, it's a mission. An experiment is still a mission. So civilians, old. civilians. That's all I can. Tell. <laughs> That's all we do. We just shake our heads and walk away. Pretty sure Sea Lab. I don't want to go back to that world. I'm pretty <laughs> sure Sea Lab Two was a war. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was a police action. It was a war with physics and the environment, with limited casualties. So this time in 1965, they went down. They had not only did they have refrigeration down there for food and whatnot, but they also had hot showers, which they did not have. Previously, and bigger. It was a bigger place. Nice. Yeah, the old place was 40, 40 by nine. If you remember, is that the interior or the exterior dimensions? Probably the exterior. I'm oh, assuming. So you Which, don't even know. You don't even know how big it was. But the inside. but the new one, see that two was nearly sixty feet long by by, by twelve feet. Long. By twelve feet. Wow, that's a lot of extra square feet. Yeah, when you're talking about that small of a, it yeah. reminds me of my Another first 60 apartment. Sixty square foot is yeah. Yeah, exactly. This one was famously known as the Tilton Hilton. Remember that? Hearing about that? Oh yeah, no. It was. It was no, oh yeah, because it was their Hilton. No, right? it's their little hotel. They were. <laughs> but who's Tilton? The way it landed on the seafloor. Oh, the Tilton on, with like a little posture by a, the end. It was a tilt. Yeah, it was a lot of tilt. Yeah. Okay. So they nicknamed it the Tilton Hilton. Did they live with that tilt? They didn't level it out. No, they lived with it. It wasn't so bad. It wasn't like Whoa. you mean all that, all the resources they had available to them. They couldn't put it on a flat seabed. Well, it was, come on, it was in over two hundred feet of water, two hundred and five feet of water off of La Jolla, California, just off of Scripps Institute of Oceanography. You couldn't have it had some landed, divers down there and guiding look, it in. They were looking for the flat spot, but they they it you landed couldn't. a little. <laughs> okay. I mean. Do I expect you? Nearly, nearly fifty years later, they're they're sinking. <laughs> if they're, I'm they're living sinking in shipwrecks there. down in the down in the Caribbean, yeah. they screw that up still. Well, that's a lot different than putting it down on a crane. When you're putting it with a crane, you can lift it back up and reposition it. Listen, if I wanted you to come to the show and make sense. I don't know. Do I have too high of expectations? <laughs> if I'm living in the damn thing for umpteen weeks, I'm with you. I, I am with and you. And I got to walk in a tilted. It would drive. Know? It would drive me absolutely insane. Have you ever stayed at every like time? You, know, every uh, time you put the pencil down, it just rolls away. Son of a bitch. You pour and stuff. It's at an angle. It's just little things. But have you ever like stayed at an old B and B or something, or just been to someone? You know, they've got an old house and the floors are just you know an inch over. 15 feet, you notice it, and you're like, oh, right, right. What the fuck's wrong with this house? Now, just think, you got to live there. For at least, uh, you know what? And then who 15, draws the short straw and has to sleep in the, the quarter days. where all the water rolls? You get out of bed every day, there's an inch of water down in your corner. Am I making too much out of the, the level thing? The Tilton um, Hilton. Yeah, it wasn't, it's not like it was the sloping, uh, yeah, the sloping, uh, Holiday the, Express. The, the slope in <laughs> Motel 6. <laughs> they leave the light on for you. So, yes, we'll, uh, we're going to jump back into C-Lab. This time, C-Lab 2. So we're going to leave Ben Helwer's C-Lab book aside for a minute. As we go into a 1966 article out of Skin Diver Magazine, which really goes into what you were looking for last time, that, like, that day-to-day activity of these aquanauts down there. Okay. Got up. I smoked a doobie. Drank a 
Mountain Dew. Just today? On your, on your, on your way <laughs> no, over? No, that would be... <laughs> no. <laughs> kind of person do you think I am? That's a Okay, so everybody, welcome back to the Great Time Podcast. Let's get this thing uh, rolling. We are in the dawn of a whole new concept of diving. It is the most significant step in underwater advancement in many, many years. Sounds like something uh, you said last week. I say that every week, don't I? <laughs> As I jump in the water. <laughs> This is the most significant advancement in diving technology in many, many years. I'm pretty sure that's the exact thing that the president of U.S. Divers said back in 1993 when they came out with the uh, impulse snorkel. <laughs> or what was that BCD with the integrated little inflator that oh, Murray's the, had? The, the, uh, I can't remember the name of it. The air trim. Oh, the air oh, the, trip. Well, they called it the hub. The it hub, that's the whole it. System the whole system the hub. Yeah. The hub, this is the you most significant like step in an underwater I wonder if we could... In many, many years. Could start a new, like, derogatory name for someone. Oh, look at, this, look at, this, look hub. at this hub. <laughs> Let's try to start that. He doesn't even use PFOG. <laughs> well, they probably said the same thing when uh, they really got going with the integrated weight PCDs. Maybe back in the late eighties, early nineties, right when that when that revolution. Oh, I know. They probably said the same thing when they that guy pulled his fins out of storage and tore them in half, and said, "I ain't got no fins other than these," and he used them. <laughs> Split fins, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> these things are the most significant <laughs> underwater step in underwater advancement in weeks in many many years. <laughs> In I think hours. they I think they said that about the the diva BCD when it first came out uh, the lady a lady's BCD pretty sure that they said this is the most significant step BCD. in underwater advancement for women in many in many, many ever years oh that reminds me when someone probably came up you know someone probably when someone came up with the idea of uh, you know like hey. We already got an air hose going into this inflator on my BCD. Let's make it into a regulator. That sounds like the most amazing underwater step in advanced significance <laughs> in underwater history in, in forever. Forever, yeah. I can get rid of a hose because that one hose is really holding me back. Yes, there could have been a number of different things that uh, were considered the most significant step in underwater advancement. But I would say that in 1965, they were talking specifically about Sea Lab. It was a fact. And this is, uh, these were the words of Captain Walter Mazzone, MSC of the U.S. Navy. And they expressed the importance of Sea Lab to better than I have ever heard, writes Bill Barda, a staff writer for Skin Diver Magazine. The aquanauts of Sea Lab 2 paved the way for man's invasion of the deep water covering the Earth's continental shelves and ensured his eventual conquest and exploitation of the vast resources of the submerged world. So let me ask you something. <laughs> 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 it's where he's just, James like, oh, shit. 
no, we're going to be taking off. I don't say oh shit yet because I really you wait because no sometimes idea where yeah, it could go. It could be right well. I'm just thinking if I was an aquanaut, if I earned that title of aquanaut, right? right? Not Maybe. everybody's an aquanaut. I don't no. think you can just say, "Oh, I got my open water card. I am now an aquanaut." No, you have to You've spend to live, You have to spend underwater. 24 hours underwater yeah. to be considered an aquanaut. And even to be considered to do that job, you've got to pass all kinds of schools and tests. Right, and, right. You know. A lot. It, it probably takes a good amount. So you're an aquanaut, and then they open up this little aquatots and just take your name and sl- the. It's like uh, Navy Seals, Navy Seal tots, or Navy pups, or whatever you want to call it. Navy eels, seal pups, it's Navy seal pups. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, hey, wait a minute. I'm just. No, wondering. I thought I thought you were going to say something about the. Um, what they talk about. Invading uh, the deep water for conquest and exploitation of the resources of the submerged <laughs> world. Is, is that, that what they said they were going to do? Yeah, yeah. That's our mission. Well, How yeah, so can we goes, exploit these resources? So here he goes. The aquanauts of Sea Lab 2 paved the way for man's invasion of the deep water, covering the Earth's continental shelves, and ensured his eventual conquest and exploitation of the vast resources of this submerged world. Nice. That's the 60s for you, <laughs> man. That's the 60s, right? There's all kinds of shit we can get down there. We can take it all. <laughs> we can leave just a bunch of empty... Not even empty. We can leave just a bunch of trash when we, we leave. We need, we need American flags to, <laughs> to spike into the seafloor. Yeah. A dead coral reef and beer cans. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like like back in those days, like they were nobody out. gave yeah. a shit about throwing out beer cans, throwing out cigarette butts. Oh, no. You did everything. Exploiting every, the ocean floor. Yeah. They didn't think whatever at they all could, about Whatever trash. they could get their hands on. Yeah, yeah. Which makes you wonder. I mean, you, who goes through life like that? Well, nowadays I hope nobody. But do you th- so that well, makes you I, wonder. I take that is this because uh, they still do? Because you uh, still see people throwing well, shit out their car windows. Idiots, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of idiots. I, I, still, there's I'm not, not going good, to. Oh, I'm not going to de- defend their action here, but I, I oh. can see it because it wasn't really on the mindset of most people back well, then. Well, that's what I'm. I guess my question is: so us being more, I, I just don't like the idea. Like, okay, humans are just horrible, horrible little creatures that they have to be programmed to not be shitheads. <laughs> Isn't that you know? Bizarre? Otherwise, if we just woke up and we're you know just willy nilly on on nature's raising program, right? We would be, in other words, you don't have like someone going okay. The social programming that goes on right now, which is you know, pick up your shit, be green, be you know, be nice to everyone in green and stuff. You didn't have to be told that. It would be my thing. I'd be like, no, if you are just a natural person. You'd pick up after your shit, and you'd be nice to people. Yes. Go read some Henry David Thoreau, people. <laughs> exactly. But no, according to this, the, the message I get is, we conquer, were just asshole. Conquer and exploit. <laughs> Rape, conquer, exploit, smoke, drink. The success of C-Lab 2 experiment proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that such a program is feasible. And the coming population explosion with its demand for the mineral resources of the ocean floor make its continuation imperative. But Sea Lab also opened a Pandora's box, unleashing equipment, technological, and engineering problems, which must be solved before the conquest of deep water becomes a reality. The riches of the Earth's submarine planes and the future of diving may belong to those solving these problems. 
I think a little bit we're in the a, a definite continuation of that still today with where a lot of diving equipment and stuff is going nowadays. Making the quick jaunt to two, three hundred feet pretty simple if you just want to buy some gear to get you there nowadays. Well, I think you, I mean, the complexity of it hasn't changed to go down that deep. And that's what I think a lot, you know, a lot of new divers who get into diving and think, well, I'm open water today. In three weeks, I'm, I'm making that dive on that 240 foot shipwreck. All I got to do is take this class. Right. All I need is the rebreather. I need a breather. I, or can do an open because circuit I, and I can do it on air and, and whatever. You just got to take those certain classes and you can have it done versus putting any time in for experience and doing something well. And, uh, you know, like I say, yeah, some people b- pop down to 250 feet, 300 feet, and, they, and it's simple. They do it off the boat with a, a tank or two and they live. So now there's the new bar for them for. Right, right. Because diving is very forgiving. And I, well, I think in, in these days, in the 60s, when they were looking at building these. Uh, they're trying to live these, down there. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, they they're want lo- the they're, rest they're of the world to live and down there. Using yeah. and, and playing with these uh, rebreathers at the time, these semi closed systems, mm-hmm. that they, um, they were pretty close to being really comfortable with it at the time. I, I, I think that they figured by. The '80s, like it would be, like it would be really easy to just yeah. live in at the bottom of the ocean for. Well, if you look at popular months. mechanics and popular science, you see those like cover drawings of the future, the their visions of the future cities underwater. Right, and then here we are, forty years after. We don't even the, have a flying after the car 20, after the twenty years <laughs> after, right? We're sixty years yeah. after this, right? Uh, we're still at a point where the rebreather. Technology is good, but it's far from perfect, I would say. Yeah, that would be my, my, I think it's improved from what it was 10 years ago. And that's mainly because you have more money going into it. But yeah, yeah, it's for, I don't think it's near perfect at all. I still think they have mess ups. Each of the three teams of Aquanauts of C-Lab 2 lived and worked for periods of 15 to 30 days, 205 feet beneath the surface of the ocean in the cold waters of the Pacific. Their station was located at the edge of Scripps Canyon off La Jolla, California. Their home was a 57-foot-long cylinder, 12 feet in diameter, in which they breathed an artificial atmosphere of 80% helium, 16% nitrogen, and 4% oxygen. This strange mixture of gases was necessary since the atmosphere inside their home was at the same pressure as the outside water. At this depth, ordinary air is poisonous and breathed over long periods of time. Divers inside Sea Lab, their bodies saturated with gas at this pressure, could enter the ocean at a depth of 200 feet with the same ease they would enter a swimming pool on the surface. They spent hours working outside the chamber when normally this time is limited to a few minutes. They returned to Sea Lab, their artificial surface, without bothering with the problems of decompression or concerns for the bends. The base of the Sea Lab entrance well was, in effect, a new water surface, 205 feet beneath the true surface of the Pacific. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that stuff's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. That you could just be walking around your apartment. 
Yeah. Have your own little entryway to your right out. to your private swimming pool. I would and you're yeah. in two hundred feet of water at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Well it's like getting one of those little resort huts out in Bali or somewhere in the South Pacific or deep in the Caribbean waters and right in the middle you got a little pool. Yeah. A little moon pool, I guess you call it. Can't remember. We had one of those on a on a barge in commercial school where you know, but it was it was quite uh Rustic, uh, but anyway, and, and it was Jersey. It, were, not, it, it, it was Tahiti. Joyzy. It, it wasn't Tahiti. Uh, it was Joyzy. Yeah, it would be towed out on a, with a tug, you know. But uh, in the middle is where the diver would go out, and around the edge we had different control centers for divers, so you could get a whole team of divers going out in the middle, and you weren't subject to the outside conditions, you know, because we were doing it in the middle of oh, winter. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty rough. Anyway, yeah, it yeah, would be did. cool. And they were breathing four percent. Four percent O two. So that two oh five. Correct. Is that like a point point two eight? Well, yeah, we were yeah. EPO two, something like that. I imagine the docks and everything work something up to say, like, listen, you can increase oxygen over a period of time. Will will you know, long period of time will damage your lungs. Right. So they wanted to keep the. PPO2 they wanted to keep it super yeah, low. Trying and to keep it low. I'm just surprised why they didn't keep it at. That's that. Um, the Lorraine Smith effect of yes. pulmonary O2 toxicity. Pulmonary. Although it's not the, the CNS not sick effect, yeah. uh, a seizure issue that you're right. facing like you it's would for like going f- too deep. It's yeah. that long-term exposure to a higher PPO2 leads to that inflammation of the lungs. Right. Which I'm, I'm sure they knew of back then, which is why they're keeping the... Well, yeah. The, yeah, that effect they, they learned of back in like the early 1900s. I went to high school with a girl named Lorraine Smith. She just went by Lori. Don't ask. Go on. I'm, I'm waiting for the, the punchline. There's no punchline. No, there's, there's always a punchline <laughs> with you. What are you talking about? There's no punchline. Well, there is kind of, there's a story to it. So I took her to prom, right? So I had to go, I had to go buy the prom tickets, right? Are you listening? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, but, but this Lorraine Smith was a dude. No. Oh, that Lorraine Smith? It's, uh, the, this, the well, this was J. Lorraine Smith. Yeah, this Lorraine Smith. He couldn't mistake for a dude, but... Yeah, so went to prom with her, though. So I had to go buy the prom tickets. And you get there. Huge freaking line, right? Huge line. Finally get the prom tickets. So I think, okay, I'm going to rent a limo. Go to limo place. Everybody and their grandmother got the same idea. Huge line out the door. Finally get the limo. I, I didn't think I'd get it, but I got it. Uh, got to get the corsage and whatnot. Yep, yep. Everybody is fucking at the flower shop. Every, of course, it's, like, it's prom. What the hell? It's prom. Yeah, but you don't think everybody yeah, at the same time. Yeah, anyway, huge line. We go to the prom. There's all the kind, you know, all the food and snacks and some yeah, some you uh, got the tables the, and you got to get up to the line to get, the, yeah. get your drinks and your yeah, some punch. They had a big punch bowl. And, yeah. So I'm like, you want something to drink? I walk up to the uh, punch, pour a cup, come back. Wait, wait, there's no line for the punch? No, I told you. <laughs> There's no punchline. <laughs> okay. Oh. Badoomsh. Badoomsh. I'll hey, be listen. here all weekend. Hey, listen. No, this Lorraine Smith, um, yeah, he was he was studying. Trainer. He's a trainer at uh, Planet Fitness. Noted trainer at Planet Fitness. <laughs> he was open wa- Advanced open water scuba diver. <laughs> No, he was studying uh, mice and birds back in like the early 1900s and uh, noticed uh, oxygen would, would become a pulmonary irritant over time. Mice and, and uh, boids. 
were they complaining of like uh, difficulty breathing? It's irritant. It says um, uh, develops cramps in their hands and legs while breathing oxygen. Um, uh, Smith uh, went to show that intermittent exposure to a breathing gas with less oxygen permitted the lungs to recover and delayed the onset of pulmonary toxicity. Back in 1912, right. he uh, was good. learning the value yeah. of uh, what we would call today. O2 break. Yeah, we would call back gas breaks nowadays. Yeah. Depends on what's your back gas. Yeah. What if you've got Mountain Dew and pot? <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool stuff. Um, I think so- Mountain Dew and pot was like the staple <laughs> breakfast of every stoner I went to high school with. <laughs> This newfound freedom at this great depth was not without its penalties. Under no circumstance could they swim up to the surface on their own, and they must always be able to find their way back to Sea Lab. Getting lost or swimming to the surface meant certain death. Were they tethered? They run a reel? No, they had Tuffy. Tuffy? Tuffy. The dolphin oh. who would guide them back in an emergency. Are you kidding me? No, man. That's they, awesome. That's totally awesome. So three teams of 10 aquanauts each worked in phases of 15 days with fresh aquanauts replacing the preceding team. Two men, astronaut Scott Carpenter and Lieutenant Robert Sonnenberg, Medical Corps, U.S. Navy, spent a total of 30 days in the chamber. Scott Carpenter, leader of teams one and two, was the first man to ever spend 30 consecutive days at this depth. The other guy went down for, you know, the first yeah. came up for a bit and then went back down with uh, with team three there. It was his anniversary and he was never going <laughs> to live it down. You're where? You are where? Don't you know it's our six-week anniversary of going out together? Honey. You remember? <laughs> honey, 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 uh, it's a, this is a very important discovery that we're on the cusp of learning. The answer are you, are you making fun of me right now? No, it's fine. Well, why, why are you talking like that? Honey, it is voice. our six-week anniversary. Honey, my voice We like went this. to see Cary Grant together. Honey, my voice is like this. That was when you asked me out. Because they hear you, honey. I'm not making fun of you, dear. <laughs> the average age? I Would know, you go I out with a, a girl who had that voice? I just Because <laughs> I'd be like, uh, I don't care what she looked like. I have to talk to the person I'm with. And if she had that voice, forget it. Brandon! We're done. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> I gotta go. I'm sorry. Brandon, did you cut the lawn yet? <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I know what you're thinking. What yeah. was the average age of these men? I know it's, it's right on your mind. 16.4. Aquatots really about, I'm going to say, 19 months. <laughs> the average age of the 28 participating men was 36 years old. So it wasn't a bunch of young youngins. No, because you these need... guys were in the Navy for a while. In the and Navy. And then went off to medical school and officer yeah. school. And, and so they'd, they'd been in the Navy for quite some time. So these guys told of their experiences and gave their opinions of the project, there was two very basic facts that stood out above all others Bill Barta mentions in this article. The first was that men can adapt to living in an underwater environment as readily as they can adapt to living in the Arctic or in the tropics or in outer space or any hostile and isolated area. What about women? (laughs) (laughs) The second fact 
was that the present equipment is primitive and inadequate for long immersions in deep water, especially if the water is cold. And they were saying that the future of this program needs to be improving the equipment to the point where it's reliable. High tech, baby. High tech. It's time to go high tech on, on their asses. Yeah. So the Aquanauts had no time to play on this Sea Lab 2. There is no time. They weren't looking at Playboys. There's always were, time to play. They weren't looking at Playboys like they were last time. They weren't, they weren't, weren't pulling a Jacques. They weren't, having cribbage, they, weren't having, they weren't having cribbage games. <laughs> there, there wasn't, you know, a guy down there smoking a pipe and no, uh, is uh, drinking uh, wine. And this is a U.S. Navy trip. This wasn't a them. Cousteau trip. <laughs> the Cousteau's didn't See, if, you got, if I have to volunteer for one, Jacques, my boy. Before we will do dive one, we must finish <laughs> this cognac. <laughs> we cannot leave the cognac open on the table. You sound a little Italian there. <laughs> Mamma mia. Down under the water, we become Italian, no? That is the, the, the we French on top, we Italian down, away, down that's, here. That's what the helium does. <laughs> the to helium make you. It changes your accent. Ay, caramba. So the three teams were given a total of 47 different experiments to complete. They were asked to assemble weigh stations, construct a weather station to measure currents, temperatures, and changing conditions on the bottom in an effort to learn if these were affected by surface weather, and to set up a benthic communication center underwater whereby all communications with C-Lab and the surface would be routed, an undertaking of the script scientists. There was a foam in salvage project to raise the hulk of a jet aircraft to the surface, the patching of a simulated hull of a submarine, and attaching a lift pad to it, and a physical and biological oceanography program. It seems you left out one of their tasks. The one? The one where they built a Lego model of their family's (laughs) first car, first auto. Uh, This is where the Lego program was officially launched (laughs) as well. They did not have the rounded Legos or the pre-made wheels or anything like that. You just had square blocks. Now, these projects... So you, all the wheels were, were square. square. Yes. Unless you not, made it humongous. Like in the current days where you could get some real wheels. Oh, yeah. I remember those days. Well, these projects and tests assigned were far more than they could accomplish. And they never worked harder in their lives. The purpose of these experiments was Except to... Except that one time. <laughs> the purpose of these experiments was to determine man's capabilities in saturation diving and what problems were involved in their execution. Jay Skidmore and Billy Kaufman, Navy photographers with Team One, spent two hours and 45 minutes in the water on a single dive, the longest period for their group. Both said they did not suffer from the cold as long as they were working and moving in the water. Kaufman said he could easily have stayed longer but returned to the lab only because the job was finished. (laughs) That pansy-ass partner of mine got cold. (laughs) But both men also stated that as soon as they stopped working or exerting themselves, they became chilled within two to three minutes and had to return to the chamber to warm up. The interesting thing about this was that once they became chilled, they could not warm up again in the water, no matter how hard they worked. Question. Yeah. What kind of exposure suits are they wearing? And what is the temperature of the water? Some of the divers were in three-eighths inch wetsuits. Three eighths, right? And then uh, some of them were using experimental heated suits, and they were in, the water was heated, 50, 50 heated degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, okay, right. heated with what? Pee? Electric. <laughs> pee. <laughs> That's <laughs> what they, you're going to pee in a suit <laughs> heated with electricity, wait, wait. eh? We're going to heat your suit now, Bob. Close your eyes. 
<laughs> well, this is really warm. This, this warm fluid you're putting in is really warm. A couple of guys come to, come out in speedos and goggles, swim over. Uh, Cyril Tuckfield. Condom catheters. Remember old uh, remember old, into the back end. Remember old Tuck? Cyril Tuckfield. Tuck from, was there? Uh, he was there, uh, a Navy diver on Tuck. the first team. He was from... He was George Bond's buddy mm-hmm. on that yeah. record, three hundred foot blow and go. Yeah, who, who was the guy that was like, "There you go, that's how you do it," and then collapsed. That was Charlie Aquadro. Aquadro, very yeah. good. A Navy diver on the first team also said that he couldn't. Uh, tr- Cyril Tuckfield uh, was a Navy diver on the first team. Also said that the cold didn't bother him while he was working. So the, the point being, like while they were down there working. They all seemed to say they could. They felt like they could stay almost unlimited, but as, as soon as they stopped, yeah, doing you something, cold. you get cold. And I think that's a psychological thing. Like it could if, also be with like the if, pressure. If you're if you're the down pressure. there doing something, and your mind is focused on the doing because they that's what they were grasping. saying is they were really overloading them yeah. on work. They gave them like so much work that they could never possibly get all the work done. So they were always felt like they were working. And as soon as they stopped doing something, did their wife's holy did shit? Their wife's. Set this whole deal up? <laughs> Did they plan this this mission? <laughs> I got an idea. Uh, I want them to change. I want them to paint the kitchen. And I want them to move all those pictures in the family room. And then change the furniture from the basement up into the den. And then the stuff that was in the den to go into the family room. The stuff that was in the family room is going to go into a sitting room that I want added on to the back side of the house. And then I want a new deck. And then I want a she shed. <laughs> you remember, you remember uh, Scott Carpenter, oh, the old astronaut, Commander Scott Carpenter, uh, turned aquanaut, said that he is convinced that helium confused the human thermostat until they could adjust to the strange atmosphere. He compared the acclimation time required for adjustment to living in the chamber to any unusual climactic confirmation needed in high altitudes, the tropics, or the Arctic. The normal period for a human to become acclimatized to a new environment is about 15 days. And in his opinion, C-Lab demonstrated this same requirement. He said that at first the men would wake up at night feeling cold, although they were at the same time perspiring from the heat. Carpenter is convinced that heated suits will be an absolute necessity in future operations of this type and that the design for these suits has to be improved and perfected if they are to have unlimited working time on the bottom. He felt the cold definitely restricted his time and decreased their efficiency. Now, we know nowadays that if you're diving a a trimix on a deeper dive, we don't fill our dry suits with that same gas that we're breathing. And it's not the breathing of the gas that's making it cold, it's just being immersed in it, that yeah. helium has a really high heat conductivity and it just pulls the heat out of your body. It pulls it out, yes. Which what they were doing is they were living in sea lab with this high helium percentage, which was making them cold because they were in that environment. Yeah, there's right? other there's yeah. other issues with having helium surrounding you. Yeah, so yeah. we go down yeah. and you know, we'll, we'll be breathing a trimix but we'll have just air pumping into our dry or suit, argon, yeah. a separate little bottle of air or argon or something yeah. to fill the dry suit with. Yeah, and those so argon diet. Yeah, I, I shouldn't interrupt you, Jamesy. Sorry. Uh, yeah, do you remember when you? You know, I, I always, 
I went and bought a couple tea bottles of argon and was always diving with argon. But the thing about using the argon is it's mixed with air unless you purge your suit a couple times with the argon and get it completely out. And it does lend, it does have a bit more thermal insulation properties than, than air, but I never, unless you're using it right, yeah, you don't I really never feel it. noticed it dramatically enough that yeah. I said, oh my God. I oh yeah. Have well, argon. that was my whole thing is I gave up on it going, I'm paying, yeah. Yeah, although argon's not expensive. It's not like helium. Right. Um, Physical strength and dexterity tests were given before and after each dive to determine the loss of efficiency. A number of divers implied that the time they were most aware of the cold was during the tests they were required to perform before re-entering the sea lab after a dive. While they were still shivering and shaking from the cold, one test in particular caused some discomfort. This was a triangle made of various sizes of bolts and nuts, which, like a puzzle, could only be put together in one way. Trying to fit this intricate contraption properly in the water while freezing was a real chore. Their fingers wouldn't flex because of the loss of feeling, and they often dropped small pieces into the sand, which they had to find. All of this had to be finished before they could enter the chamber to get warm. My guess, my guess is that this tested a man's psychology and good nature as much as his dexterity. Well, yeah, it's like having to, you're trying to do something when you got to pee. Yeah. Have you ever tried <laughs> right. to do that? And you're like, okay, I'm just going to get this done and then I'm going to go pee. And you're in the middle of it and it just keeps, you drop shit. Oh, you yeah, lose yeah, your yeah. concentration for a minute. And now you got to pee worse. And you're like, okay. it reminds me of like when we had to do crap in, in the commercial school or in any commercial job, like you're doing pipeline work or anything that has a bunch of parts, giant bolts. You're working in about eight inches of viz, and you drop a nut into the silt that you can reach your arm completely down before it stops. You know. Oh yeah, you, know, you got to find that. You got to find that goddamn bolt or nut or whatever the hell you dropped. And it's cold, and you're oh you're, yeah, you're pissed. You've already been down there four and a half hours. Oh my god, <laughs> just imagine. Right. So I what I'm getting from all this is that just overcoming the thermal issues underwater, which is logical, right? You, you would think it would, yeah, it would be very cold. Is a huge, huge hump to get over. Where were, where was this again? This is in Southern California. Okay. Well, of course, they didn't pick a, a warm water destination. But... Well, they had Bermuda for the first one, remember? Yeah. And then they moved to Southern California. They probably wanted the cooler water. Because? Because of the... To Test. answer more of the questions in the testing. Yeah. Are we going to live? <laughs> Just think about that. That's that way to die. If for some reason you lose topside support for whatever ungodly reason, what it, where is their heat coming from? Electrical source? Well, gas? Probably, probably uh, electrical, I would assume, but I, I don't know for it's sure. It's still finite. Even still, like, I mean, if they lost their heat, they. It'd be a hard way to go. Yeah, we got tons of gas, but. We're going to be living in, I guess you could huddle yeah. together and get a bunch of yeah. crap on you. But even, it seems that in, in that 50, helium atmosphere, it's still wicking the heat away from you quicker. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Okay. I would think you'd okay. have to keep the inside of that sea lab like 85 degrees. You'd, ha you'd ha have to keep, yeah. it can't I mean, be it at be 70 something because part of the reason yeah. we live comfortably at 72 or whatever in our houses is because we're in an air atmosphere we're in, I got and you, I it's got insulated you. we don't wick the heat away so quick but in helium 
it's like you say, if you're surrounded with that much helium, you're getting cold quick. Right, right. I got you. No, I don't think you understand. <laughs> I get it. I get it. The Aquatots ran into the same problem <laughs> back in 62. A female sea lion joined the Aquanauts of team number three. <laughs> I don't even want to go where this is going. Playfully cavorting <laughs> around the divers near the lab. After a day or two, she became so friendly that she tried to follow the divers back into the pressure chamber. The sea lion got inside the entrance well, stuck her head up into the helium air of the lab, took several breaths, and tried to bark. It was probably the most unusual sound ever emitted by an animal. Can you imagine a sea lion barking in a Donald Duck voice? So for a while, Sea Lab personnel were concerned over the consequences of the helium on the animal. She was no doubt the first sea lion in history to take a breath of fresh air at a depth of 200 feet. Did she have a Trimix card? She She only had deep air, didn't she? (laughs) She only had deep air. If she were to swim to the surface without expelling the expanding gas from her lungs, the result would be an embolism. Radio and television stations on the mainland alerted the population to be on the lookout for a sick sea lion. If she survived and she could be treated in a recompression chamber quickly, she might be saved. But the concern proved to be unwarranted. The sea lion returned to Sea Lab the next day, apparently unharmed. The sea lion was so enjoyed the activity and company of the aquanauts that she practically became part of the experiment. All doubt as to her identity was removed when the surface divers caught her one day and painted her stomach white. From then on, it was no problem to distinguish their pet from the stray sea lions wandering into the area. Oh, PETA would be there. Right, right. Well, it gets worse because the aquanauts even tried to train an animal to respond to underwater signals in the same way their pet porpoise, Tuffy, has been taught. The sea lion responded to the signals readily, but without advanced training, it was obvious she didn't understand what was to be expected of her, and her antics were unpredictable. However, Tuffy the porpoise... Tuffy the porpoise... (laughs) Tuffy the porpoise dolphin swimming around to save your I'm ass. I'm a porpoise Don't dolphin. Lost, or if you do, Tuffy's there to, to rescue you. you. I love that show. Oh, yeah. yeah, so the. the Billy, where's uh, Tuffy? <laughs> there, Dad, look. Tuffy's trying to tell us something. <laughs> Scott Carpenter, where is Scott? <laughs> Has to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> Behind the sea fan. Hi, Aquaman. <laughs> what is Tuffy saying? Yeah, so uh Tuffy's pretty nice looking dolphin. No, the the funny thing is Tuffy was a Caribbean dolphin that they threw into Southern California. Son of uh <laughs> These men should be shot. <laughs> Tuffy the porpoise. Although what if Tuffy was like, I've been down trained. here with the Jamaicans, man. Yeah. I've been down here smoking ganja, man. And and the California dude is like, yo, dude, you got to try some some uh, <laughs> California sense of <laughs> Okay, so Tuffy the porpoise was specifically trained for the C-Lab experiment by Dr. Ridgway, Wallace Ross, and Bill Sexty at Point Mugu, California. Magoo. Mugu. Point Mugu. Aquanauts John F. Reeves and Kenneth Cond of the U.S. Navy worked with Tuffy during the second phase of Sea Lab. Reeves said that Tuffy was great fun to work with and he enjoyed her very much, but the work had a deadly serious purpose. One of the greatest dangers facing the Aquanaut is getting lost. 
In dark, murky water, a diver loses his sense of direction very quickly. An ordinary diver is in less danger because he can always return to the surface, but the aquanaut must find Sea Lab or die. Elaborate safety precautions were taken to prevent this from happening. These included handheld sonar, trails blazed from Sea Lab to the various work projects, tight buddy system controls, and similar measures. All of these were time-consuming and restricted and hampered the divers in their work. Also, there was always the chance of a slip-up or an accident, which might cause the loss of a diver. The experiment with the porpoise was to attempt to find a better and more dependable answer, which would permit greater freedom of action. They should have just, like, shoveled a circle around every 50 feet with arrows pointing back towards <laughs> well you know we we joke about that little protocol from from ice diving right. but like running line I, I think this was still in a day where you know even cave diving in the 60s was mm. still in its infancy and 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 having those rules of a, of a continuous oh, guideline yeah, home yeah. but this is right under that same protocol is you know you're on a on a dive you know time management system of you have to have the tools with you to guarantee that you're getting home. Right. And the rule that we follow nowadays is nowadays is you've, you're running a continuous guideline. If it's yeah. a place that you have to get back to, then you need that line all the way back. Yes. So when they were out working, were they on a breather? They were, weren't they? Yeah, they were on those so Mark they, Sixes. Yeah, they, um, yeah. So they did have a a lot more gas, so they didn't have to worry as much. I know they as had... As being on scuba. Being yeah, on I mean, open circuit, what, um, limited supply. Yeah, yeah when we look at what those, uh, well, those two guys did earlier... The length of time, the two and a half hours. Yeah, which was... That's a good, yeah. the longest, you know... That'd have been a lot of open circuit gas. Tons of open circuit <laughs> but gas. But you, you don't yeah. have to worry about carrying deco bottles, which is nice. Right. You just do, do a two and a half an hour dive, and it's like you were in the yeah. 10-foot pool. Right. If that... Six foot pool. Well, Aquatots work in a four foot pool, so they're used to that. Tuffy was trained to respond to a special signaling device carried by the Aquanauts. In this case, Reeves and Conda. The signal was a unique sound combined with a blinking light. Tuffy carried a harness on his back in what was placed several hundred feet of nylon lifeline. At Sea Lab, he lived in a cage on the surface until he was called to duty. When an aquanaut signaled that he was in trouble, the signal was received by the surface support vessel, and Tuffy was released. The porpoise swam straight for the signal, approached the diver, and placed his chin on the diver's wrist. The aquanaut removed the end of the safety line from Tuffy's harness, and the porpoise streaked back to the surface, trailing the line from the lost diver as he went. This gave the diver a line to the surface. Then a second signal placed near the entrance of the sea lab was actuated, and Tuffy, with the line from the lost diver still attached to his harness, dived to sea lab, establishing a lifeline from the diver to his underwater home. In practice sessions, Tuffy made the complete round trip at 200 feet and back down to Sea Lab in one minute and 10 seconds. An amazing performance. The Aquanauts claim that Tuffy proved more effective at locating a diver than the expensive handheld sonar equipment. He performed so beautifully that future Sea Lab experiments are sure to utilize porpoises for greater safety insurance. And they uh, they talk about here and hear about how later on he was so popular that they ended up using them for carrying mail and messages and small items back and forth from the surface down to the aquanauts and he ended up winning a um award from the national association of letter carriers 
Did he carry a pizza down? <laughs> Did he win yeah, an that, award that would from be good. That would be good if, Papa John's? If, if Tuffy could win a Domino's pizza down there. So another thing that we had to uh, look at was uh, some housekeeping. The first team reported that it required two weeks to set up housekeeping in C-Lab. They made it clear that more time is needed to get things done underwater than on the surface, since the estimated time for this job was to have been three days. The men were deliberately assigned more work than they could possibly accomplish, like we talked about. And um, there was a guy, Tom Clark, who was a marine biology student at Scripps, was disappointed that he could not accomplish more on his biology studies that he wanted to do while he was down there. William Tolbert, a civilian at the Navy Marine Defense Lab in Florida, was given a simple detail with a second team, which illustrates the problems of underwater living, as well as anything that occurred. Tolbert joined Sea Lab at night, and as he swam down from the surface and got his first sight of the chamber, he was enthralled by the spectacle. Powerful lights illuminated an area with an eerie glow reflecting off the bioluminescence of marine organisms. In moving, living clouds of light, thick schools of fish swarmed over the chamber, circling and darting through the light in the clouds of silvery reflection. He swam to the entrance, still enraptured and excited at greeting his buddies already in the lab, and he was handed a package of garbage and told, Here, get rid of this. But Tolbert says there wasn't a garbage detail in the whole world like the one with Sea Lab. He had to swim with it out of the shark cage and send it to the surface so the aquanauts would not be guilty of fouling their own nest. This meant that at garbage time, Tolbert had the choice of suiting up with complete gear or making it in the cold water in a bathing suit. Even throwing the garbage out was an interesting chore, according to him. Sounds like uh, me in February. Yes. <laughs> you know? I run, I run outside <laughs> quick. Do, do I throw my, uh, my snowsuit on, my boots on, my hat, my gloves, and take the garbage out? Or do I just run out in a pair of feet, feet in your feet. underwear? <laughs> so Scott Carpenter emphasized the difficulty and time required in just getting equipment and supplies back and forth on the surface. For example... Each day, the breathing equipment for every diver had to be sent topside for service and refilling, and then returned. This same procedure was standards for most of the tools, machinery, and other equipment used on the bottom. Anyone who has worked underwater in poor visibility and with no communication can appreciate the difficulty for even these small and simple tasks. A forgotten wrench, bolt, or screw meant a swim to sea lab, a message to the surface support station sending the item to the bottom and a swim back to the project under these conditions logistics became of major importance so it sounds like you know the uh those rebreathers were being you know basically serviced and repacked topside every night they weren't doing that down in seattle because i mean you see somebody even like today you know uh uh doing prep and and post cleanup on a rebreather i mean they they take up they take up a huge amount of space you know giant two picnic tables worth right. of uh, space at the local dive site, you know, which they're working a 12, 12 by 50 foot space in all of C-Lab too. They just wouldn't have the room to, to probably do that at depth. So they're sending it all up mm-hmm. to the Navy crew topside to do all that prep work on the unit. Well, they, they were already crowded for space. and Yeah. And you can imagine, and, and that's kind of where they go, like being that crowded with space for people. Side, yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the nerves of men getting on the nerves of other men, like just being on a liveaboard dive boat with, like, with a group of people for a week, you know, at the end of the week, there's a couple yeah. people on that boat that you well, can't just go on a weekend trip. Like, <laughs> a weekend yeah, trip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you could imagine if you had a couple of quote unquote, those people on the, I'm on surprised. The boat. Yeah. That there, there's not as much emphasis on that because I think that would be really difficult. Well, they mentioned that, um, Often in crowded quarters, you know, one of these guys was saying how he would have blown his stack a lot, you know, just like yeah. lost his mind and, and went off the deep end. And But being here, you know, somebody doing something wrong, doing something incorrectly, dropping something, you know, he, he learned to keep his cool down there at depth. And he mentions that this attitude was typical of every aquanaut participating in Sea Lab 2. And it is the same as that reported by the aquanauts of Sea Lab 1. Perhaps men become more better individuals while they are diving, or perhaps divers are a unique breed of men. Captain George Bond, originator of Sea Lab Concept and medical officer with the Navy Man and Sea Program, stated that the men selected for Sea Lab were carefully screened before they were accepted. But such a wide variety of personalities and characters could never be put together with such complete harmony without something extra going for them. Two comments give an indication of what this something is. The first came... While I was talking to a group of 15 aquanauts at the Long Beach Naval Station during preparation for Sea Lab 2, Tuck, in answer to a question about his apprehensions in anticipation of diving with Sea Lab, said fuck it. that he had ah, fuck <laughs> it. <laughs> said that he had no fears, primarily because of his complete confidence in Captain Bond and Captain Mazone. Tucker's words were, "I would gladly go through hell if those men said it was okay." His opinion was unanimously supported by every man in the group. They also said that they could speak for all the aquanauts in the experiment. They all felt the same way. Astronaut Scott Carpenter gave the second comment during a press conference after his 30-day stay at Sea Lab. Scott said it was a privilege to know and work with the divers as a group. He also said he felt sorry for those who don't know these superb men and who must remain outside the whole of undersea environment and experience. I believe every skin diver shares this feeling of pity for those who do not know the submarine world. I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Don't know don't the know. submarine world. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, so they definitely uh, built a mindset of these guys of, hey, you got to roll with it. Yeah, you, know, but, uh, you don't have a choice. We're stuck down here. Yes. No use of getting pissed off about little things. Well, I think it's almost like any co- even a combat group of uh, military personnel. You have to have respect for your leadership, like almost unquestionable respect. Yeah, there's a time to deal with to... there's a time to deal with that later when we get back and we're yeah. sitting in an office in a conference room. We can work it out those details out for next time. Yeah. But, but right you, now right we now, got a job to do. Right. And you gotta you know, there's that chain of command, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can't have everybody questioning every order or every requirement, you know, because that's that's how this thing is structured. You're gonna you have people directing, you have people working, and everybody's got to work together in order for it to uh, to get the job done. It's just like a sports team, you know? I try to tell my kid that. There's there's uh, no shameful job kind of thing. If you're part of that team, that team doesn't function without, you know, all the little jobs getting done and all the big jobs getting done. And the big jobs don't get done unless the little jobs are done. Yeah, you know? it's, it's not the 80 minutes you're on the field. Right. 
So you got to leave your it's, ego uh, at all, home. Yeah, it's all leave that other ego, stuff that goes right. in that team. Yeah, for sure. Because that's the killer. I think the team killer is an ego. That is a killer. I would say on a sports team, as is, is much as a is a big dive, dive operation team, like yeah. this, right down to a, a two or three man dive team going to Absolutely. accomplish a Absolutely. dive on a, yeah. a shipwreck. Right. Go somewhere on a weekend or have a mission of diving, uh, especially deep diving, where so many things have to come together from, you know, the planning to the logistics and the gas mixing and the arranging the charters and all that kind of stuff and have, you know, somebody who thinks I'm better than everybody else. And, <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah, it does not work. Of course, I'm better than everybody else. <laughs> so, no, I'm telling you, Brandon, <laughs> that attitude isn't going to work anymore. we got to change some things. Okay, so uh, we end this uh, article up by talking about the this pioneering experiment of Sea Lab 2 was only at a depth of 200 feet and for a total of 45 days. The area explored and investigated was equivalent to 30 city blocks. The continental shelf extends underwater from the Earth's landmass at an average depth of 600 feet and equal in the area to the continent of Africa. This vast undersea terrain is where mineral resources eroded from the land areas over eons of time are deposited. The recovery of these minerals is vital to future advancement of civilization. Many critical minerals are already showing signs of depletion, and the demand is accelerating. Future aquanauts will work in 400, 600, and 1,000 feet of water, expanding man's invasion to the edge of the continental shelf, where it drops into the abyss. They will be followed by industry, exploiting the resource of the new world. Then will follow the workers who will colonize and inhabit the area. Who knows? Perhaps we will see underwater cities where inhabitants take vacations to the surface. All of this being made possible by the vision and persistence of the men who pioneered Sea Lab and the Aquanauts who manned it. No glory goes to the Aquatots. Nope. Well, there you go, uh, Bill Barda and Skin Diver, for a very nice description right of, uh, of what was going on down there in Sea Lab 2. You know, there was a conversation of, old Lyndon B. Johnson talking with Scott Carpenter, kind of congratulating him on the on the job done down there. And you know, he's talking at depth, you know. Oh, yeah, with yeah, the with helium. the helium on board. And then it's, yeah. it's funny because when you watch the clip of it, you know, they aired it on PBS. But you watch it and getting ready for the phone call, like they're not going to bother with having the president deal with all the bullshit at the beginning but they got these two operator ladies that are trying to link up the call and, and she's like oh there's something wrong with your connection <laughs> and he's trying to explain to this this 1960s woman working as a the switch operator right you know uh that he's talks like this because of the helium in his voice right. and she's got no clue what he's talking about they didn't put a scrambler on or a voice descrambler whatever you no want he's full on he's full on helium yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. pretty good so hey everybody, um, I hope you're enjoying our little dive into Sea Lab. This is a pretty cool little project for us. We're having a lot of fun doing it, and we're not done yet. We got some more stories, so stay tuned. Next week, same scuba time, same, same scuba, scuba channel, same same dive time, same bottom time, same bottom time, same, same bottom channel, same English channel. All right, everybody. Until next week, see you later. Safe diving. I know that being 205 feet underwater for 30 days and making the excursion dives that you did, 
has been very valuable to us and advanced our knowledge of how humans can perform under these conditions. And I want you to know that the nation's very proud of you. You're very brave and skillful, and I'm grateful that you've successfully completed this experiment. Well, thank you very much, sir, on behalf of all the crew and all of those who participated in C-Lab. Uh, it's an honor to be a part of the program, and again, we're pleased to, uh, to know that uh, we're this interested in, in what we've been doing. I must apologize for the, the uh, sound of my voice. It's the absolute best I can do uh, in a helium atmosphere. How are you feeling? We're feeling very well. We uh, entered the blue decompression chamber about uh, four hours ago, and everyone is healthy, and we're running on schedule. Uh, I've had a note from Ms. Carpenter, and your wife uh, is very proud of you, as we all are, and uh, I just wanted to say hello to you and all the fellows associated with you, and uh, good luck, and... Uh, uh, we're mighty proud of you. Thank you very much, sir, for calling. Thank you, Scott. Good luck. I'll see you later.
I would say it is all right. He understands that uh, Commander Carpenter is in a synthetic gas atmosphere. I would try it through. He, he's in a what atmosphere? A synthetic gas atmosphere, using helium instead of air. That causes the human voice to be very garbled, but I think the president will understand. Scott, I wonder if anybody understands this. Well, I don't know. The operator said that she knew uh, what I was uh, trying to tell her, but apparently she didn't. No. Well, we just sit tight and see. All right.